From the State Capitol, WFSU Public Media brings you Capitol Report. Just in case Florida's governor decides to run for president despite the former president's announcement this week, here's some advice from someone who knows a lot about such things. If you're thinking of running for president, you've got to see how controversial issues played out in the elections of the other 49 states. Also this week, what many had thought would be a national red wave of Republican victories didn't happen in the November 8th election except for one place. Guess where? National Democrats have thrown in the towel on Florida. We'll also explore which Democratic voters stayed home the most during the recent election in Florida and find where all those donated turkeys for Southwest Florida storm victims are coming from. I'm Tom Flanagan. This is Capitol Report. Talk of Governor Ron DeSantis running for president in 2024 has been amplified since his re-election victory last week. Valerie Crowder has more on how DeSantis' political ambitions could affect his second term as governor. DeSantis supporters cheered on the idea of the governor running for president in 2024 just after he won his re-election bid. Thanks to the overwhelming support of the people of Florida, we not only won election, we have rewritten the political map. DeSantis hasn't announced plans for a presidential run, but several signs point in that direction. If a 2024 White House bid is in his future, that could mean he serves two years instead of four. 68-year-old Tallahassee resident Jill Thorne voted for DeSantis, and she says she's not completely turned off by the idea of him serving a shorter term. I prefer he stay in Florida, but yeah, I'll probably support him if he runs for president. DeSantis has campaigned for Republicans in key battleground states, including Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. His re-election campaign for governor raised some $200 million, with $90 million left in the bank. Pro-DeSantis mailers have even been sent to addresses outside Florida. All of that has increased his national exposure. And if you look at what's happening in the past and read books about campaigning, they'll all point out that you can't start a campaign really, really late and be competitive unless you have mega, mega bucks. That's longtime Florida political analyst Susan McManus. She says DeSantis is likely to govern in a way that continues to elevate his national profile. And that means he'll likely take a more measured approach. If you're thinking of running for president, you've got to see how controversial issues played out in the elections of the other 49 states. McManus says one example is the issue of abortion. And the governor has not jumped right in and immediately called for some of the uh, levels of restrictions on reproductive rights as some other states have. And he could have put made a big point of that in his platform right now, but he has not. McManus says DeSantis is more likely to prioritize the environment and the economy. People and businesses who move to this state often are drawn by Florida's living and, you know, the environmental assets of the state. And he certainly does not want to see any kind of reversal of Florida's population growth and also our economy, particularly if he's interested in running for president in 2024. 
McManus says she also expects DeSantis to continue his focus on education. We see scores faltering. Fewer people are going into some of the key trade areas that we really need and have good salaries. So I think that that'll be a big focus as well. The environment, the economy, and education will be the three things he focuses on most. Republicans won a supermajority in the state legislature. That gives them full control over policymaking for at least the next two years. And a presidential run wouldn't necessarily force DeSantis to resign early. State law only requires elected officials who qualify to run for another office to step down early. But that's not how presidential contests work. Here's Tallahassee elections attorney Mark Herron. If you're running for Senate, you qualify under Florida law under the qualification provisions. If you are running for a United States representative, you qualify. But a person who's running for president does not qualify for federal public office. They are nominated by the political party and their names go on the ballot automatically. Heron says that's why he's always interpreted the state's resign to run law to preclude presidential candidates. One thing is certain, if DeSantis steps down, then Lieutenant Governor Jeanette Nunez would serve the remainder of his term. I'm Valerie Crowder. While there may not have been a red wave across America on November 8th, there was a red tsunami in the Sunshine State. Republicans walloped Democrats up and down the ballot. In the Deeper Dive with Derek Cam podcast from City and State, Florida, City and State's editor-in-chief Jim Rossica talks with Dara about how Governor Ron DeSantis' power is likely to rise under an increasingly Republican legislature. Here's an excerpt. DeSantis really is now, he's, he is the American Caesar. He will go into, for instance, the 2023 legislative session with just, you know, a mind-boggling amount of power. E- even though he, he is going to have a uh, legislature that has super majorities in both the House and, and the Senate with the GOP, that presents its own problems because, you know, e- even under a supermajority situation, you know, it's, it's hard to herd the cats sometimes. It used to be, Jim, and you've been here long enough to know that the Senate has changed, you know, the Senate, the the saucer that cools the hot tea or whatever, um, the Senate used to be a moderating force when Republicans dominated both chambers. The Senate had a number of moderate Republicans who could join with Democrats to stop some of the for example, an abortion bill that, you know, so some, some, there were coalitions that could be, that were made across party lines back in the day, that situation no longer exists. And that's in large part due to so many House members came over and joined the Senate. I I can mention, uh, I can think of two who are, you know, pretty hard right folks, Kelly Stargell and Dennis Baxley, just just to name two, for example. That's right. And nine House members came over, uh, seven Republicans, seven Republican House members came over to the Senate on Tuesday. Yeah, okay. (laughs) So I think that's another contributing factor. And I think also 
national Democrats have thrown in the towel on Florida. You know, it was interesting. I don't know if you saw Senate Minority Leader Lauren Book issued a statement on Wednesday following the election, basically blaming the party leaders. It seemed to me the party, she blamed a lack of infrastructure Mm. on the Democrats, just to back up, Democrats lost four seats in the Senate. So it is now a 28 to 12 split. What is the, the uh, what is it, two, the two-thirds? Two-thirds, the supermajority is 27. So, so they have 28. They have 28, yes. That's mind-boggling. Yes, it is. So there were three Senate races that really were considered to be toss-ups. Um, the Republicans won all of those. Yes, uh, including one that I got an angry uh, supporter of one of the incumbents that lost, blaming me for the loss, of course. Yes, that would be Loran Osley. That would be Loran Osley. Tell uh, everybody how you screwed the pooch for so Loran Osley. So how I screwed the pooch <laughs> for Loran So in 2020, Loran Osley was running for state senate against a Republican by the name of Marva Preston, and that's when I was the managing editor of the Tallahassee Democrat, and we were doing, in the high age of COVID, we were doing virtual campaign forums. So we did a virtual campaign forum with uh, Democrat Loren Osley and Republican Marva Preston. And toward the end of that campaign forum, which of course was broadcast on the internet, was recorded, is kind of part of a lightning round. I asked the two candidates, I started with Loren Osley, is there anybody you won't take campaign contributions from? And she said, no. And that took me aback. And if you look back at the recording, I kind of shake my head a little bit. And then I go, you'll take money from anybody? And she says, yes. So, so of course, the Republicans take this clip. They They make a commercial in 2020. They then use the same clip and make another commercial for this election same clip, and uh, and then they kind of riff off of the whole. Loran will take money from anybody. In it, they they riffed off of that in other ads. And Loran, who had been calling her opponent, now State Senator Corey Simon, an extremist, they started throwing that uh, label back at her. So she uh, collapsed Tuesday night. Uh, was overcome by. Corey Simon in a much desired the, the the Senate Republicans wanted that seat so bad yeah. for so long. Yeah, she was clobbered. That's how I put it in my story. Fair enough. She was clobbered Fair by enough. Corey Simon. And there you have it, kids. That's a little behind the curtains peek into what goes on the the symbiotic relationship between the media and politics that you might not have, know about just by reading our stories. That was City and State Florida Editor-in-Chief Jim Rossica in an excerpt from The Deeper Dive with Derek Cam's podcast, a product of City and State Florida. Hear the full episode wherever you get your podcasts. Governor Ron DeSantis' administration was dealt at least a temporary loss in federal court this week. That happened as a judge blocked a controversial law that restricts the way race-related concepts can be taught in universities. 
In a 139-page ruling released on Thursday of this week, Chief U.S. District Judge Mark Walker wrote that the state's approach to redistricting university instruction is, in his words, positively dystopian and said the First Amendment does not tolerate the measure. The law is antithetical to academic freedom and has cast a leaden pall of orthodoxy over Florida State Universities, Walker wrote. The controversial law was a major priority of DeSantis this year, with the governor dubbing it the Stop Wrongs to Our Kids and Employees Act, or Stop Woke Act. Coming up on Capitol Report, we discovered that while the overall Democratic voter turnout in Florida was bad, there was one particular voting bloc that stayed away in droves. And so there's no need for us to engage them. Matter of fact, we can go engage them three months before the election. A concerted effort to reduce the plastic waste associated with holiday gifting is beginning to bear fruit in Florida. Not everyone can afford to shop at package-free stores, so that's why we're really calling on these corporations to make the change. And even as Southwest Florida rebuilds in the wake of Hurricane Ian, good people are banding together so that the storm-tossed residents can still enjoy a bountiful holiday. Give the blessing of Thanksgiving, rebuilding that facility where they live. It's hard to imagine how the elections just passed could have gone worse for Florida Democrats. Republican Governor Ron DeSantis was reelected by 19 points. The GOP-controlled legislature owns a two-thirds majority in both chambers. And as Marjorie Menzel reports, there's not much the Democrats can do except an autopsy. And it's focusing on one group in particular, black voters. Former Democratic State Senator Dwight Bullard points out that although DeSantis won by a bigger margin this year than in 2018, he actually had fewer votes. Bullard says his party could have done better by talking more about the pocketbook issues where people are hurting. I've talked to a multitude of Floridians, but black Floridians in particular, who've been talking about the, you know, the, the notion that their rent has gone up $600 or more. I need somebody to talk about that, right? Like, how are you going to help me with that? Those pocketbook issues matter to all Floridians, but to black voters, they're especially important, says Senator Chevron Jones, who's now one of just two black state senators. First of all, let's be clear. Black people are not a monolith because they believe that this is our, 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 our dedicated group of people. And so there's no need for us to engage them. Matter of fact, we can go engage them three months before the election or six months before the election. But I think we walked into a mess around and find out situation. In August, DeSantis announced the arrests of several formerly incarcerated people for voter fraud because they cast ballots in the 2020 elections despite having a disqualifying felony. Most of the people arrested are black, and they say they were told they could vote by state officials. Bullard believes those arrests alone have had a chilling effect on black voter turnout. Unfortunately, it's a story that's not being told enough. The idea that the DeSantis administration both gives you the green light to vote as a returning citizen 
and then have the audacity to then slap their hand when you've done something that they have a complete hand in making sure that you are able to do, for lack of a better term, is diabolical. Florida's newly redrawn state legislative and congressional districts also favor Republicans. The governor pushed changes that eliminated a prominent black voting district in North Florida. Then there was the money, says Steve Shale, a longtime Democratic strategist. DeSantis collected close to $200 million. I love Charlie Chris to death, but, you know, they didn't have, they didn't have an actual campaign. And uh, I, mean, I, I suspect when the numbers are all said and done, that Charlie Crist probably in the general election spent less money in the entire nine or ten weeks of the general election than DeSantis spent in, in, a, in any one of the one weeks of the election. Given time, those problems might have solutions. But whose interests are Florida Democrats really fighting for? Representative Anna Escamani, Democrat of Orlando, believes Democrats' overall silence on economic issues was their biggest mistake. And I think where Democrats continuously struggle is that we self-censor ourselves to meet the needs of corporate consultants and donors. Whether it's the rising cost of rent or utilities or property insurance or the need for clean air and clean water, these are all issues that intersect with actions by corporate America. The Democrats cave to those corporate interests, she says. And Democrats are often silent in championing these issues because they don't want to irritate their corporate donors and potentially lose that source of financial backing. And if we're going to continue to self-censor ourselves and bend over backwards to serve corporate actors versus constituents, then we're going to see the same outcomes time and time again. Jones agrees and says Democrats have to learn how to walk and chew gum at the same time. And they have to be present in the communities that form their base of support. Blacks in communities have made it clear that you have to give me something to vote for. Don't tell me how bad things are, are, excuse me, without moving the needle in my community. So far, Florida Democrats are crying and licking their wounds. The true test of their character will be whether they can get back up again. I'm Margie Menzel. Hurricane-damaged properties in FEMA flood zones may be subject to a federal rule that prohibits repairs unless the entire structure is brought up to current building codes. WUSF's Gabriela Paul spoke with a homeowner in Sarasota County who says FEMA's 50% rule might make it too expensive to rebuild. Trisha Murray found her home almost counter-deep in canal water after Ian. We had three feet of flood water in our house still five days later after the storm. So we spent the first few days just going in by kayak and canoe, just trying to save whatever we could out of the house. Murray predicts that replacing the floors, cabinets, drywall, and doors in her Northport house could cost up to $100,000. If that equals more than 50% of her home's appraised value, Murray will also have to raise her home to comply with updated flood elevation levels, which can be extremely costly. Basically, you have to tear the house down and rebuild it up higher, either on stilts or by bringing in a lot of fill dirt. So that's the challenge that we're facing now is that most people do not have enough insurance to cover that expense. Insurance limits from the National Flood Insurance Program are capped at $250,000. Even at that amount, Murray says most people don't have the money to offset the expense of a total rebuild. I'm Gabriella Paul in Tampa. 
we're using more plastic and recycling less of it. That's the finding of a new report from the environmental group Greenpeace. WLRN's Yvonne Zumtobel spoke with some South Florida business owners who are trying to cut down on plastic waste by selling foods and other goods in bulk and package-free. Verde Market in Fort Lauderdale sells a variety of dry goods, body care, and plant-based cleaning products that you can buy in bulk using your own containers. The idea came to owner Pamela Barrera after looking at her own plastic waste at home. The dish soap bottle, the laundry detergent bottle, the shampoo bottle, the body lotion bottle. So we did some research about recycling and and, and we discovered that basically recycling requires a lot of water, a lot of energy, and we don't recycle. But Ed is right. Lisa Ramsden is from the environmental nonprofit Greenpeace. So most plastics in this country are not being recycled right now. And even when we were shipping our plastic waste to China, we were counting that as recycled plastic, and we don't actually know what was happening to it once it got to China, and we think a lot of it was being incinerated or landfilled. According to the report the group released in October, only half as much plastic is getting recycled now, compared to 2014. It's not very economical to make things out of recycled plastic. There's not a a huge market for it because it's really expensive to sort and collect and clean and reprocess all of this plastic. In Tequesta, Ilana Smith's package-free store is like going back in time. It feels like an old-fashioned dry goods store from the 1930s. Handwritten cardboard labels are fastened to shelves, which contain a variety of loose pastas and grains, flour, and dried beans. And we opened the store because we really wanted to reduce our waste personally and found that it's just really hard without this resource. It's hard just like going to a regular grocery store because there's just not a lot of options without plastic. She opened her shop, One World Zero Waste, four years ago. So you could come in with your container. We weigh it first, write the weight on the jar, and then you fill it up and we weigh it again. And then we can take the weight of the jar off so you're never being charged for your jar. The store also sells items that help reduce plastic waste, homemade reusable paper towels, snack bags, and cloth diapers. Smith offers weekly plastic-free packaged meal kits and CSA boxes, community-supported agriculture, containing locally sourced vegetables. The store orders from local farms and only as much as it needs to fill customers' orders, which are placed in advance, so there's no food waste. We have locally grown sprouts, a couple different kinds of sprouts, eggs. The eggs are, you know, really, once you taste local, you know, good organic eggs, you will never go back. Grocery stores, in addition to wrapping everything in plastic, they also massively overbuy. So, you know, our whole system here eliminates that problem. The Greenpeace report says U.S. households generated an estimated 51 million tons of plastic waste in 2021 and only 2.4 million tons were recycled. And research shows that plastic use worldwide is expected to quadruple by 2050. The solution lies with big plastic producing companies. Coca-Cola, Nestle, PepsiCo, Unilever, these are some of the worst plastic offenders. They're putting millions of tons of plastic out into the, the world every year. Lisa Ramsden of Greenpeace says the group is calling on big companies to commit to selling half of their products in refillable and reusable containers before the end of the decade. 
we're not asking individuals to make these grand changes because not everyone can afford to shop at package-free stores. So that's why we're really calling on these corporations to make the change. Later this month, members of the UN Global Plastic Treaty are meeting to develop a legally binding commitment on plastic pollution. I'm Yvonne Zumtobel in Boca Raton. Well, much to no one's surprise, Florida saw an uptick in its unemployment rate in October after deadly Hurricane Ian swept through southwest Florida. Meanwhile, the labor force continues to grow, according to numbers released today. The State Department of Economic Opportunity said the unemployment rate was 2.7 percent in October. That was up from an historic low of 2.5 percent in September. The report estimates that 285,000 Floridians qualified as unemployed in October. That was an increase of 19,000 from September. The labor force also grew for the 10th consecutive month and was at 10 and three-quarter million. Jimmy Heckman, Chief of Workforce Statistics and Economic Research at the Department of Economic Opportunity, said Ian might have accounted for a part of the rate increase, but he feels the jobs numbers in hard-hit areas of southwest Florida are relatively small compared to the entire state. Florida has really, really strong labor force growth. That's been very consistent since the beginning of 2021, really. Heckman said he couldn't estimate how long it might take for employment in southwest Florida to recover. Florida was one of 24 states where unemployment rates increased, with Pennsylvania the only state posting a decrease between September and October. That according to the U.S. Department of Labor. You're listening to Capital Report from WFSU Public Media. I'm Tom Flanagan. Finally this week, this week brings a Thanksgiving tradition, the call for turkeys and all the trimmings for those in need. Some groups are making urgent calls for donations after the devastation of Hurricane Ian, particularly in southwest Florida. Others say housing is more important than turkeys, as WGCU's Mike Walter reports. Community Cooperative is taking in or buying 3,500 turkeys and other Thanksgiving staples by the end of the week. Chief Executive Officer Stephanie Edwards calls it the Full Plate Project. I really feel like the opportunity to gather around a table and be able to celebrate that Thanksgiving holiday is more important now more than ever. Lee resident Bruce Myers welcomes the tradition. I think it's wonderful that these people have stepped up and have coming out and doing things to help people. There's a lot of people that need a lot of help. They have a lot to be thankful for. God blesses you even in tragedy. Reverend Israel Suarez's new organization, the Hispanic American Citizens Council, is giving meals to 50 needy families already selected. And next week, Suarez plans to bring 50 cooked family meals to a badly damaged trailer park in North Fort Myers. Otherwise, he's focused on fixing damaged mobile homes and believes the rest of us should be too. And right now, yes, the turkeys is good, but the place to stay is better. Give the blessing of Thanksgiving, rebuilding that facility where they live. Terry Lamb of Cape Coral says she appreciates the meal offers, but adds, It's a Band-Aid on a big problem. I, I think there's mixed emotions on that. And when you see piles of stuff that were in your house, it's not normal. So people are just... Um, feeling a little hopeless and I'm sure a turkey may give somebody some hope but I don't think that's the whole that's not the whole deal. Lamb's sister Candy Cavares says she can't feel joy in holiday cooking because Ian destroyed her belongings after flooding her North Fort Myers home. 
it's just been gutted. So who wants to cook in a house that's been destroyed inside? A valid point, says Stephanie Edwards of Community Cooperative. So her organization plans to bring cooked meals to Fort Myers Beach before Thanksgiving. She sees the holiday as a chance to help. I have seen uh, just the most beautiful response from our community members who are stepping up to take care of their neighbors as we recover. I'm Mike Walcher in Fort Myers. Our regular Capitol Report correspondents are Valerie Crowder, Gina Jordan, Lynn Hatter, Regan McCarthy, and Margie Menzel. Thanks also to Jim Rossica, Yvonne Zumtobel, and Mike Walcher. Technical assistance for Capitol Report comes from Evan Rossi and I'm Tom Flanagan. We're taking a week off for Thanksgiving, but we'll return the week after with more reports from the state capitol. Capital Report is a production of WFSU Public Media in Tallahassee.